Hey guys, welcome to the show today. We have a special guest for you as we uh, always do on, on Thursdays, but I think he will particularly um, bless you and encourage you. My friend Stevenson and I met recently at the CareNet conference in San Antonio where we both briefly spoke um, on the main stage. And, uh, and his story really floored me. And he's really a, a walking contradiction to the premises of progressivism. Uh, and is shining the light. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Stevenson Holland is the poster child for abortion. According to progressivism, the only compassionate thing would have been to murder him. But hardship doesn't justify homicide. Uh, and it would be more than 27 years before he was reunited with his birth mother. A foster child, adoptee, and now father of three, Stevenson is a recording artist worship leader, author, inspirational speaker, and founder of Broken Not Dead Ministries. Stevenson speaks around the country on abortion, foster care, adoption, sexual immorality, substance abuse, and much more. A living reminder that life is always better than death. Stevenson is shining life in a dark, dark culture of death. Buckle up, you're in for a treat. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Stevenson, welcome to the show, brother. Hey, Seth. So honored to be here. Yeah, it, uh, this, this was a long time coming. Our, our mutual friend, Mark Newman, um, who's <laughs> a phenomenal speaker and has been faithfully speaking in the public square for the preborn for many years, uh, sent me a message months ago saying, you need to have my brother Stevenson on the show. Uh, and then we met in person, coincidentally, uh, yeah. at the CareNet conference. And boy, of the, of the six speakers I think we did, uh, I think you probably had the audience in tears um, more than anyone else. Um, but God has worked very uh, providentially through, through your life, um, and it's a real story of redemption. And so I, we cover everything in this show. We cover philosophy, ideology, religion, culture, abortion, um, and getting people to understand these ideas. But more and more, I just wanted to have people um, who are the contradictions um, of the culture <laughs> who were told that yeah. they should have been killed, that they should have never had the right um, to live. Um, but hardship doesn't justify homicide, and, and your life mm. is certainly a testament of that. So um, firstly, um, because you're sort of, I think, a little bit newer, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. to um, the pro-life circuit, um, mm -hmm. guests might not be as familiar with your story. So I just wanted you to share um, your heart, and we did a teaser in the intro here, um, but what's your story, um, and how did it start, and then just walk us through how God has so providentially worked in you. Yeah, well, uh, I know we don't have a ton of time, so 39 years of life, it's, it's hard to wrap it up, but I'll be as quick as I can. Um, when I was eight years old, Seth, I was at school, and I had some some people come to me and say, man, you are weird and different, and I'm like, you know, an eight-year-old child never wants to hear that. Uh, even adults don't want to hear that. We just want to be liked and loved and accepted. Right. So uh, so it hurt, you know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And they said, uh, well, have you not noticed that you're an entirely different color than the rest of your family? So for the oh, first wow. time, people, when I share that, they're like, really? It took till eight years old before you realized you were the wrong color, right? But I look at my hand that day, and uh, sure enough, I'm brown, you know, uh, and my family is white. 
So I come home that day from school and, and uh, my mom sat down on the side of the bed with me. She knew something was wrong and we just had a conversation. And so I found out at eight years old that the reason my skin color was different than the rest of my family was I was brought into their home as a seven day old child, uh, as a foster child. Um, they got me, uh, the only thing they had was eight pages of typewriter paperwork from 1982. I was born on March 31st. And um, it had literally it had my birth mom's name. Her name was Glenda Sue Holt. And then that really broken information, um, which that they actually gave that to me. I, I call it a gift today. They gave they put that in my hands that day as an eight year old when she's explaining to me what happened. So I was placed in their home um, on the same bottle I'd left the hospital with. Uh, I was so weak that I couldn't suck a bottle. They had to squeeze milk into my mouth. So this family that wasn't my color, they weren't my blood, uh, they literally nursed me back to health, um, you know, by, by holding me. And some people say I'm a little spoiled maybe, but, you know, that's up for debate. Um, but they, uh, they would squeeze milk in my mouth and literally uh, they saved my life. Um, so at six months old, the state of Tennessee, which gets kind of interesting, uh, they decided that I was actually, because of my skin color, that this home isn't where I should be, that I should be placed in a biracial home or African-American home. So at six months old, from, from six months old to age uh, a year and a half, well, actually two years, so a year and a half, there was a legal battle that ensued between the Holland family um, as a foster child to legally adopt me. So um, wow. it, I always, I love the, the fact that this community, predominantly a white community, um, came behind this this uh, foster family to fight for the right to keep the baby in the home, which was me. Um, so for a year and a half, there's a legal battle, uh, them trying to keep me in, in their home. And I have, I literally, to this day, I still have uh, hundreds of uh, petition letters that were written, a lot of them handwritten, that were sent into the state of Tennessee to be able to keep me. Um, so By I look at- adopted family. Yeah, um, so the community rallied wow. behind this family to be able to keep me in the home, and it must have worked. Uh, at age two, I officially became Stephenton William Holland. I came into the world as Stephenton William Holt. Okay. Um, so that that was something. So I find that out as eight year as an eight year old child, um, and I people ask me, you know, how did you feel? Like, what did that make you? You know, and I, if I'm being honest. Um, that's the first time in my life I ever truly remember being broken. Um, I didn't understand why I had to be the wrong color, right? Because that's what I was told. Right. I didn't understand why, uh, you know, this isn't my, my blood family. And really the biggest thing was, is why would a mother not want her son? And that was, that was something I, I was going to carry for a long time. Uh, and I didn't realize that I didn't realize the pain that I was carrying on the inside until obviously much, much later in life. But it was always something that was always there. I just didn't realize it. I yeah. kind of call it, a, you know, a hole in my soul. Oh, yeah. Um, no, totally. Yeah. Did your adoptive family know the story that you're about to tell us? No, they did not. So wow. literally, literally so all they had was, for all of you. Absolutely. Literally all they had was those eight pages of typewriter paperwork. And, and then they knew that there, there could have been some mental, a uh, mental handicap, uh, you know, some lack of mental uh, ability from my birth mom, but they weren't sure. Um, so that's kind of where we are. So 
I also want to say here, being a man of faith, uh, God plays a, a huge role in my life, and that was established very early on. I always tease when I speak. I had a drug problem growing up. I was drug in and drug out of every church known to man, right? <laughs> so, uh, so I knew the name of Jesus, but you know, having a relationship with Him, uh, relationship with Him was a, a little different thing. And in the midst of my brokenness as an eight-year-old child, uh, about three to four months later, after walking through, you know, what I just found out. I really, I came running to the altar during a church service and said, Lord, I'm broken, I'm hurting. And I've heard that, you know, I've, I've heard all my life that you're the person to run to when I'm hurting and broken and I need healing. Right. And so I came to know the Lord as an eight-year-old child, uh, which would be something, obviously, you know, as, as believers, we know that's right. the start of a journey, but the journey is just getting started. Right. So I say that Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but sometimes that's a daily grind to make Jesus yeah. enough for the, just for the day. And so what happened was, you know, Jesus plus sports, Jesus plus relationships, Jesus plus this, this, this started, you know, getting in the way. So for me, uh, sports was my, my place that nobody's going to call me weird and different anymore. Right? right. So in middle school, I was a fullback and middle linebacker, 200, none of your business pounds. Uh, I got, got the nickname earthquake. Uh, later in high school, I, I got a little bigger and I went from earthquake to freight train. I had all these, uh, I had these dreams of, of playing college football and I had scholarship offers and, uh, 1998, I actually, um, I had a back surgery, 17 years old. I had three herniated discs and a pinched nerve from a high school football injury. So here I am, you know, laying in bed. 17 years old having surgery and my dreams are crushed and I'm, I'm blaming God. I don't know if anybody out there has ever been there, but you know, God, why, you know, it's the same question I had as an eight year old child. Like why God, you know, why would a mother not want her son? Why, why is this happening to me? Um, so I'm, I'm laying in bed and I, I come across uh, Romans 12, one and two. Uh, it says in view of God's mercy, we offer our body as a living sacrifice. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind. And I, you know, I'm laying there and it says only then will you know the perfect will of God. And the Lord just did something in my heart. Like, okay, Lord, I'm reading this scripture afresh and anew for the first time. And you're saying that even this brokenness that I carry, like it's worth it to give it to you. So I laid it down at his feet. I didn't really understand what, what my life trajectory would look like, but I walked on to, um, to campus in Bristol, Tennessee, and I majored in youth ministry. Um, I played baseball for five years, earned a scholarship, oh, wow. got my degree. I, so I was a youth pastor for about 12 years in professional life. Um, I also met my wife there. Uh, she was a volleyball player from Tampa, Florida. I, I tease that I literally married up. Uh, I know I'm sitting down right now, but she's 5'11", and I'm five none of your business, right? Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, but we, we decided very early on that we wanted to start a family early. Uh, that, that was kind of in our plans when we got married. So we did that. Um, my wife was pregnant within a few months of being married. Eight weeks into our first pregnancy, uh, my wife has a miscarriage. I'd actually left her at home to go uh, to, uh, on a Sunday service to be with our youth, and she passed our baby at home alone in the toilet. So... Here I am, a young husband, uh, a father-to-be, and guess what I'm asking God again and my wife? Why? You know, God, all, all we've wanted to do is be parents. I mean, we can't wait to be parents. Like, what are you doing? 
Um, so we, we had to wrestle through that, battle through that. And, um, but God started doing something in me. I look back now with this, with the story, I had something that kind of depression that started to kind of set in and, and, and it, and it took me back even to that eight year old child, you know, not having information on uh, to this day, I still don't know my medical history. Um, but I found out my race a, a few years ago. Uh, a pastor friend of mine purchased a, a DNA test. And uh, so I literally, we don't have enough time on here for me to describe how many different races I am. <laughs> but wow. but, uh, but we lose our baby. Then we have a successful pregnancy who's our 14-year-old today. Her name's Isabella. Then our third pregnancy, um, 10 weeks in, we actually lost another child, uh, another baby. Um, this time she had to have a DNC, which I know you all have covered that on some some future episode or uh, or post episodes previous, but she um, this time it was different for me as a father because I had to watch my wife be wheeled behind closed doors and then surgically have our lifeless baby removed from the womb. Yeah. So me as a dad, you know, like when you become a parent, it's not about you anymore. You just, you will do anything to protect your children. And, and where I was mentally, it was like, Lord, I don't know my, I don't know at the time, I didn't know my race. I have no medical history. So are we losing these babies because of my past, because of yeah. generational curses or, wow. you know, I, I just went into the, into my head and it was yeah. the, the enemy started attacking me and saying, it's your fault. This is all your fault. This is you. Right. And that's where I was. And so I was a youth pastor. At the time, you know, working with middle school students, uh, and we've lost these two babies, and I'm just not in a good place. And but I remember um, we had another pregnancy, who's our our 11 year old daughter. She's actually going to be 12 on Saturday, Eliana, wow. and we also have a an eight year old daughter, Cadence. We call uh, call her KK. But when we were pregnant with Eliana, that fourth pregnancy. Remember, I'm, I'm again. I'm still kind of in that place of struggling, depression, with all that. The Lord brought me back to that eight-year-old child, and He brought me back to that special gift that I was given that my parents laid in my lap, actually, and said, "This is the eight pages of typewriter paperwork. This is all we have." And the Holy Spirit just spoke to me that day, and He said, "It's time." So all these years, that's 27 years, Seth, of life, like questioning and wondering, you know, where's my mom at? You know, does she have her own family? Like, should I reach out to her or not? Right. It, it just never felt like the right time. But that day, God said, it's time. So I took those eight pages of typewriter paperwork and I started searching on Google, uh, just doing some name searches. And I found a little piece, a little piece, a little piece. But on day three, I came across a website for a man named Steve Holt. And Steve Holt's a magician and ventriloquist from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Okay? Weird guy. Sawing people in half, talking with dummies. <laughs> I mean, you know, I did not want to. I'm like, why am I on this man's website? So, But I start, I start looking at his bio. And on his bio, literally every single name on my paperwork from 1982 is represented on this online platform. Oh, so I'm like, okay. And then my birth mom's name, Glenda Sue Holt, he says, that's my baby sister. So I was like, this can't be a coincidence. So I, long story short, I sent him an email. Wow. He reads the email. Within a couple months later, I'm on a plane flying from Tampa, Florida to Spartanburg, South Carolina. And I'm meeting my birth uncle that I didn't know existed, 
you know, after 27 years and uh, two grown men just weeping, hugging, crying. And um, and wow. in the midst of that, I spent like two days with him and we just kind of swapped stories and got to know each other. And he told me how I came to be. And so what that looks like is he said there were six of them. Uh, there's six siblings. He's one of six. All of them except for him and the family were mentally handicapped in some way, mentally impaired. Wow. So they were all, uh, their parents died at an early age and they were all split into like foster care, group homes, into the system. And my, my mom, uh, my birth mom was actually the baby of the family. There were three girls, three boys. And so when she aged out of the system, uh, because of her lack of mental ability, she was placed into a mental facility in Rome, Georgia. And uh, so she's 18, but mentally she's only 11-year-old, okay? Wow. Um, so they set her up with kind of a work program to give her some type of worth, and she could walk a short distance and then walk back. So it was pretty, you know, pretty lenient and loose. Well, one evening on her way back home, she was actually gang-raped by five men, Um and so this is, you know, this is an 18-year-old outer body, but an 11-year-old mind. So she just gets raped by these five men. Do you think she's willing to tell anybody about what's happening to her? You know, so she comes back to the facility after she's been attacked. Nobody knew what happened. You know, some months go by. They realize that she's pregnant. And so this is a state-ran facility. She has no income, no job, no family, no resources, what do you think they're telling her to do? And obviously the number one option, they're saying her only option was to abort me, to kill me. But by the grace of God, this 11 year old mental, you know, 18 year old, 11 year old mental minded woman said, the life that I'm carrying is worth fighting for. So she literally ran away, uh, got away from the facility. We don't know how. Um, (laughs) And she carried me the majority of the pregnancy homeless. the last time my uncle had actually even thought about me, I was in the womb 27 years before this, you know, when I'm meeting him. And uh, he had tried to care for her and I, but she has this pattern of, I think when people would get close to her and, and it made her feel uncomfortable and she would run, that was her pattern. Yeah. So she yeah. ran away. Uh, by the end of the pregnancy, nine months pregnant, she was living in a cardboard box behind an old grocery store in this little town outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee called Whitwell. Uh, if you're from there, it's Whitwell, uh, Whitwell, Tennessee, right outside of Chattanooga. And she was, uh, by the end of the pregnancy, living in this cardboard box, uh, nine months pregnant. Wow. And this, this 16-year-old kid named Bobby came around the back of this store, and he sees this box move, and he so he pulls it back, and inside this box is this nine-month pregnant woman, you know, uh, 18 years old. And, I, you know, the fact that I, I can't help but laugh at this part of the story because this 16-year-old boy loads up this nine-month pregnant 18-year-old woman, walks, walks her back home to his parents' house, to his home, and says, hey, mom, dad, look what I found. And he's like, can we keep it? You know, he's like, can we keep this? You know, it's not a cat. It's not a dog. It's a woman, you know. And they're like, uh, by, by the grace of God, they said yes. Um, wow. But they cared, they cared for us for two weeks. She got... Uh, got to the hospital in Erlanger, uh, Erlanger Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and she gave birth to this guy here that she named Stephenson William Holt. So people ask me, how did you get your name? And so Stephen was my uncle, who I'm meeting okay. at 27. 
And William, my middle name, was my grandfather, her dad. So the way she speaks is I want to name him Stephen, then William. But whoever heard it that day recorded it. They put Stephen then together. Uh, So that's my first name. And then William is my middle name. So... uh, you know, it's it's you think it's just like dramatic thing, but um, right. But I had a little lady in church one time say me, you know, say to me, I love that what you're saying, but but then God, but then God, and yeah. uh, you know, yeah. and I truly believe that God. I mean, His hand was all in this, but you know, seven days later, after they get me home, I actually found out in researching for my book, they actually stole me from the hospital, snuck me out, because Human Services was trying to, to take me from her uh and she wanted to keep her son uh but you know they knew that with her lack of mental ability that she you know it'd be hard but this family um you know this is 1982 too so security is not quite as heightened but uh but they brought us home uh, brought me home and then seven days later this 16 year old boy realized that you know this woman can't care for this child uh she had given me water to drink rolled over on me at night you know slept with me in the bed with her Uh, He loaded us up and actually took us to human services while his parents were at work and dropped us off. And um, so seven days old, I go into, you know, this foster family who had two years prior had had a miscarriage of their own. And God had used that brokenness in their life to open up their home to take in a child, take in children. And uh, they were longing for one more little boy. So they got me. And then to end, that was enough. I mean, that was powerful enough. But then my uncle looks at me and says, hey, um, your birth mom's alive, and she's five hours south of where we we stand right now. And he asked me one question. He said, do you want to meet her? And what the Holy Spirit spoke to me a couple months before us meeting was the time is now. It's, it's, it's yes, you know, let's go. Um, so we went down, and I got to meet my mom, Glenda Sue Holt, which I call my hero. Uh, for the first time at 27 years old. And I just happened to capture it on video. So uh, got a little treat that you can watch on YouTube if you if you care to watch that. We'll put that but in the, that's in it, the show notes. You showed that at Karenet, and that was yeah. that was powerful. And she, because she didn't know that she was meeting her son, right? No, no, she didn't know. Because uh, we didn't know how it was going to go. We honestly didn't know how, how, you know, with her, she's 46 years old in the video, but she's still only 11-year-old mental mind. Wow. So uh, so we had had plans to do something completely different than what happened on the video. God just took over. But, uh, yeah. That's amazing, brother. You know, um, the left loves to tell, like, the worst stories possible on mm-hmm. abortion. And they create, like, sometimes it, it sounds almost like a fictional account um, of like the worst circumstances you could possibly imagine. And then they use that and they prop that up as right. their case study in why abortion needs to remain legal. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. it's, they'll say something like, you know, an underage, uh, mentally retarded, homeless woman who's gang raped. It's like, oh, wait, oh, wait. <laughs> like, you know, and then, but that's what they do. And then they, yeah. but of course, it's so dishonest because they paint it as if um, that's like the, 
the norm where it's like the right. vast majority of abortions are obtained for socioeconomic reasons, pure convenience. Not to say that everything's a peachy cream, you know, not to say that it's all sunshine and rainbows. Yeah, there's difficult circumstances, but usually the reasons are still socioeconomic. They're not, <clears throat> mom's going to die. They're not like an 11-year-old girl whose hips are too uh, small to be able to handle childbirth. It's just pure convenience. But your story is literally the case study that these depraved, disgusting individuals create so that when you say, no, I don't support abortion in that circumstance, now you look like some moral monster, right? right. Who's making this woman go through this. And yet, and yet here you are. Um, because life is always better than death, and, and hardship doesn't justify homicide. Um, and so I'm, I, I wanted to ask you this. Um, what, has, what has your journey in life been like um, in a culture that tells you, and in a polity, and with polit politicians who say that you shouldn't exist? You know, we talk about this a lot with abortion survivors, of whom I have many friends that we have on the show and, and they talk about the trauma uh, it is to live in a country under a president who says that they shouldn't exist, um, that they didn't have the right to exist, that they should be dead. But that's very close to your story as well. You barely survived, and right. your mother checked every conceivable checkbox that you could think of for who the abortion industry targets as a prospect or labels the ideal patient, such that choosing life for the child is actually portrayed as the selfish evil decision, right? You would bring yeah. a child into this mess. You would make a woman like that go through that. Um, mm -hmm. And yet I'm sure when our listeners watch the video of you and your mom meeting, uh, you know, that, that just completely destroys any of the right. ideologues and talking points that the culture presents. But, but what was your journey like learning that, learning your story and then starting to speak out against abortion? Um, with a story and a mother whom the culture says should have killed you um, and meeting people who support abortion, who paint your mother as the ideal client for abortion, and yet you looking them in the face and saying, shut up, take your bigotry somewhere else. Right. I'm here. I am right. that child. What's that been like for you as you began to speak out on life? Yeah, well, Seth, if I'm being honest, like I'm walking in it right now. Uh, you know, because, uh, you know, I was a youth pastor and a worship leader, and I still am in some ways, but I'm not yeah. on staff anywhere. You know, I'm full-time uh, with my ministry and, and, and speaking, like you said, being an advocate. But um, I didn't know the power of my story. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't know that, like, all these things that you just said. I mean, yes, I my journey into the pro-life movement is, yes, I've always been pro-life. I've always supported, but I didn't know that my voice mattered. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know. I didn't know yeah. that my voice, like even standing here, like, you know, or sitting here talking to you, I'm walking in that purpose. To me, um, I think that I truly believe that. Uh, not that I'm uh, the Holy Grail is not the right word, but not not anything holier than now. But I think that I have a voice that needs to be heard. I have a story that needs to be heard right now, and you know, I'm speaking at pregnancy center fundraisers and uh, like orphan care ministry. Uh, fundraising events and some awareness things and you know just the stories the ministry that happens out of that yeah. that I mean I've literally had people you know that actually were worked on staff at pregnancy centers that were still struggling with whether um, you know whether uh, pr pregnancy should be justified in the case of rape or incest 
and yeah, and I've sat there and shared like my that. story. You know, I've sat there and shared my story, and they've been able to meet my mom by on a screen, and they come up after you know the event, and like you literally just changed my mind. You know, and and the whole table, we had a small group from church that was here with me, and we were talking about that exact same thing, and all yeah. of us kind of came here you know, under the same, like, well, okay, in this case, maybe, but then literally we all left weeping, you know, kind of chastising ourselves, you know, like that, how could we ever think that, you know? So I feel like that's like, it's affirming me when those things happen. It's affirming me that, that I'm right where I need to be, that I can't continue to stay silent, that my voice needs to be heard. Um, yeah. So I, I think to answer that fairly, I, I don't even really know if I fully grasp the power of my story yet. Yeah. I'm seeing yeah. it. I love <laughs> you it. Know? I love it. Yeah. Then God. Yeah. Well, we need to get you debating some some pro aborts, uh, Stephen. Yeah. We've got to do some yeah. um, street activism or man on the street stuff together. Um, and I'll provide I'll provide the historical philosophical approach, and you'll provide mm-hmm. the personal, and we'll just yeah. whack some demons on the head because. Um, because what do they say to you, right? That, that's, that's why, that's why I, I want to help abortion survivors and people like yourself um, either find their voice or uh, just live in their voice and speak mm-hmm. loud and speak all of the time mm-hmm. because um, those voices um, demolish the bigotry of choice by simply existing, <laughs> right? It's yeah. Like, yeah. Because it's like, hey, Hey, should I be dead? Hey, do you want to kill me? And they go, oh, no, Stephenson, I love you, brother. Well, no, no, actually, you don't, because you actually believe I should have been murdered in the womb. Right. Uh, oh, well, that was different, Stephenson. That, you weren't you in the womb. You were still just a fetus. You weren't a person yet. Oh, I wasn't a person, huh? Oh, so you believe the same thing that the KKK believed, that not all humans are persons. In other words, when did Stephenson get a right to life? Was it when the fetus fairy sprinkled magical personhood-conferring fairy dust on him? as he slipped out of the birth canal, or did he have a right to life in the womb? And if he had a right mm. to life in the womb and he had dignity then, then abortion was not justified. And if it wasn't justified for you, Stephenson, then it wasn't justified for anyone because <clears throat> yours would have been the only circumstance that would have been maybe plausible to get on board with killing you because the circumstances were so dire, which means that if you had a right to life, every unborn child has a right to life. Uh, and so living in that voice and speaking out is so important because it challenges the narrative and it challenges the status quo uh, by presenting the true picture of reality, the true picture of life and liberty against these prevailing stories in the culture that sound compassionate. They masquerade under the mantle of false compassion, um, but they're anything but. Mm -hmm. Um, It's homicide. It's bigotry. It's evil. And it's eugenics. um, And it's might makes right. Um, and so I, we couldn't be more grateful for, for your story and seeing how God will continue to use you. But, you know, this reminds me of, of our current political moment, Stephenson. So right now, you know, last week, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health, the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban, the Gestational Age Act, which uh, would ban abortion before viability, which is a stupid subjective term that means when the baby can survive outside the womb. Uh, which has been deemed something like 24 weeks, even though the youngest baby to be born and survived was 21 weeks and three days. Um, and so it's at the Supreme Court now. They'll likely issue a ruling in the new year, or they have to by June. But I listened to all the oral arguments, and I was actually encouraged with how skeptical the justices were in striking down the law. 
if mm -hmm. this if this case um, is stands, it would be a functional overturning of Roe versus Wade, which has never allowed states to ban abortion before the, the stupid subjective term known as viability. So Amy Coney Barrett, um, right, the the Catholic Supreme Court justice mm -hmm. that the left lost their freaking minds over um, when when she was nominated by Trump, she mentioned during the oral arguments, and I'm gonna I'm gonna connect it to you here in a second, um, about safe haven laws. Right. Mm -hmm. That um, no, she made this point to make the point that no one is forcing women to take care of their babies. Um, the baby can be safely surrendered at safe haven locations um, and placed up for adoptions. And so she was making this political point to argue that, you know, women aren't really being that inconvenienced. You know, yeah, you have to go through pregnancy, but most women can continue to work and then you don't have to mother the child. Now, that's wrong. I think in a just society, parents need to be required to raise their own children, and you've experienced the heartache, or what we call ge genealogical bewilderment, to quote my friend Katie Faust, that, that, that children go through when they've been abandoned by their parents. Um, but she just made the point to say, hey, no one's forcing you to, to mother this child. Well, the New York Times, in response to that argument that Amy Coney Barrett was making, came out uh, swinging for abortion. Uh, the gray lady, all the news that's fit to print, the, uh, the most mainline Protestant or mainline progressive um, journalistic institution in the country, which loves them some abortion. And they published a guest essay by an adoptee named Elizabeth Spires. And I don't know if you saw this piece. It, it kind of <laughs> took off. And the piece was, was titled, I was adopted. I know the trauma it can inflict. So in other words, foster care and adoption, Stevenson, are not a good solution to abortion. So she's responding to Amy Coney Barrett saying, that's not a good argument. Safe haven laws and the fact that babies can be safely surrendered, placed in the foster care or adopted, even though, by the way, there's not enough babies to go around. So parents who want to adopt newborns vastly outnumber the amount of newborns available for adoption. Okay, that's just a point of fact. But the New York Times says, no, that's not a good argument, Amy Coney Barrett, you stupid Catholic bigot, because uh, 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 adoption can be very traumatic. And now, if you translate that, Stephen, then what they're saying is, because adoption can be traumatic for children, we need abortions. <laughs> it's like, what? Right, welcome to the culture of death. Like, wait, isn't it traumatic to kill children through abortion? No, that's reproductive health care. But it's traumatic if born children are adopted. So what do you say to that? As someone who was placed in the foster care system, adopted, um, and now speaks into these issues, what do you say to the New York Times and these people who say that um, we need abortion um, because adoption is not a good solution to unwanted children? Right. I was, well, first of all, I'd say look at my life. Um, I have three beautiful daughters. You know, um, I get emotional over that. I, I, I say, um, you know, I look at ministry you know, just the lives that um, I think I'm nobody special, right? But but I show up and share my story, and there's an altar full of people that are that healing is being brought, and it's yeah. not just about. I mean, it's literally addiction recovery, or you know, uh, just 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 stuff. You know, just life, and the fact that I get to speak into that, that I get to make music. You know, that that's being recorded and played all over the world. That. You know, people are sharing things about how God used that one song to keep them from, you know, killing themselves. I, you wow. know, it's just like I look at that and it's like and you mentioned earlier, like, was my life perfect? Did, it, did uh, there were issues? I mean, growing up, like dating was awful for me. I was in a I was a brown kid in a predominantly white community in the South, you know, and it's like just just some things like that. Even I mean, my adopted family was not perfect. 
You know, we fought just like every other family does. But I look at, like, my life has purpose. My life matters. You know, you ask my three daughters, like, you know, to have dad in their life. You know, for my wife of 15 years that, you know, she couldn't imagine doing life without anybody but me. You know, I mean, my life matters. And for you to go back to, you know, to the womb and say, um, you know, the, the, just because of circumstances that I shouldn't be here, um, that hurts. It hurts, you know, because, and, and you know, again, being a man of faith, uh, you know, I think God, God has a bigger plan than the circumstances. And I know, well, you know, that's are we celebrating that, this month, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, you <laughs> know, I would a, an unplanned pregnancy was, that changed the world that's right, forever. That's you right. know, I always say that Mary was the perfect Planned Parenthood prospect. Stephen Absolutely. A, a teenager unmarried with a fiance threatening to leave her where she would have been treated as a social pariah by her community for a pregnancy right. outside of wedlock. Um, I mean, that's perfect prospect for an abortion. Yeah. Um, and yet that's that's where salvation enters history. Well, and I, and I look at, and you know, again, like you asked me what I would say, I mean, I would just say, look at my life. I mean, and that, that, I think that's the power of, of my story is it is my story. You know, um, I'm, if nothing else, I can at least challenge your thought process to say, you know, well, maybe, you know, like just to put that doubt in a good way of like, well, maybe circumstances don't dictate, you know? Maybe the life is important and you never know. And I always say this, I mean, you know, if a child is born and let's say it's an, it's a, it's a, an adolescent and you realize the horrific stuff that that child's going through, let's say in foster care, that they're being mistreated, would you kill them just so they don't have to suffer the hardship? You know, like when I, when you're in the womb. Yep. And I know, I know you're probably going to ask me about ministry later, but that's how powerful I think brokenness is. Some of the most powerful people on the planet are the most broken people, but they've, they persevered. You know, you have, to, you have to go through the process for your faith to be fortified and then the vision to become clear, you know, and there, but again, it's, it's having a God lenses, you know, that God perspective, which everybody doesn't have. And I realize that. But when you can see that, man, God is that powerful to take something that seems so broken and so desolate, but he's going to use that brokenness to bring this amazing glory to his name. And that's just kind of where I look at my story. You know, I always said that God gives his toughest battles to his toughest warriors. And we're in a fight right now. You know, we're in a fight for life. And the way I look at it is, you know, it's I've got my I've got my armor on, you know, what I'm saying um, and my fight is I'm going to continue to share my story and be a light in the darkness because, again, I mean, I feel like my story trumps most of the arguments that we could have on whether life has purpose or not. That's you know? Nailed it, brother. Well, and your armor is that much thicker for yeah. having been to the darkest places, right? And yeah. So that's why Apostle Paul says, you know, when I am weak, then I am strong. Right. You know, for uh, Christ says that my power is made perfect in weakness and... Um, it reminds me also of something Malcolm Mugridge once said, uh, Stevenson, regarding this question you were saying about, you know, when, when was I valuable? Did my mm-hmm. life matter in the womb, you know, or did it only matter when I was outside of the womb, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Malcolm Mugridge once said that either life is always and in all circumstances sacred or it is intrinsically of no account. It is mm-hmm. inconceivable that it should be in some cases the one and in some the other. 
that in some circumstances it could be uh, sacred and worth protection, and in other circumstances life could be right. intrinsically of no account whatsoever. I mean, that's stupid um, right. because we have value simply because of our human nature um, and the fact that we're image bearers of God, uh, which means that we have that value from the moment we're human, um, right. the moment of conception. Um, so as we sort of wrap up, Stevenson, why don't you just share with us um, how God has taken uh, your, your brokenness and, and created uh, beauty out of it and reached so many people. Um, your, your ministry is called Broken Not Dead. Is that correct? Yeah, Broken Not Dead Ministries. Um, well, honestly, I, I look back at my life, you know, and, and obviously the brokenness I've walked through, but I've also, you know, being a student pastor, being a minister in churches, leading worship, you know, this number of years, um, you know, you just come a lot across a lot of brokenness. And, but to realize that, especially in the church, but outside the church, but, you know, a heart for both secular and church, we're all broken. You know, we all truly are broken, but here's the thing, we're not dead yet, you know, and there's a lot of people that, that have walked through brokenness in their life, you know, and some, I mean, you know, some more broken than others, uh, but they treat it like a death sentence, you know? Right. Um, and they stop living. They, they stop finding purpose in that life. And I, I feel like what we do, um, obviously, I get to share my story. You know, I do that. I, I write songs called Songs of Hope. You know, they're all a song of hope, yeah. uh, you know, um, inspirational. So, you know, the, I have my platform, God's created, but Broken Not Dead is creating a platform for other people to share their story. So yeah. we do kind of two platforms. We do Broken Not Dead stories. So it's kind of like a, like an I Am Second, if you've ever seen those. Yeah. Um, we, we actually give people an opportunity to share their story. We release that out on YouTube. And so that's a virtual option. Um, and we've done 15 stories now we've shared. Um, so we do that. So God brings these people's stories along you know, my path. And I just like, hey, would you be willing to share? We get donor support to cover the cost of it and launch it out. And then uh, we do Broken Not Dead events <clears throat> where we partner with the community, uh, get sponsorship to cover costs, try to make it free for the community. And we use the, the power of storytelling and music to bring hope to broken people. Um, so that's a great, it's a unification of the community, uh, very kingdom driven. Yeah. It can be pregnancy centers, you know, drug rehabilitation centers, churches, whatever, uh, to partner together and be a place of healing for the brokenness that either be in an outdoor venue, indoor venue. Um, so that, that's kind of our two platforms. And yeah. so, yeah, so I, I just look at the power of my own brokenness and how God's worked yeah. in it. And it's trying to encourage other people to, to say, you know what, it's not the end of the story. It's just part yeah. of the story. That's right. Amen. Yeah. I love, I love how God's using you too, Stephen, because, um, I can, I can take people to school on logic and on argumentation, but, um, and that will work with some, it's, mm -hmm. it's primarily valuable in, in its public engagement aspect to shift the mm -hmm. culture towards life. Um, but unfortunately, individuals typically don't change their mind um, very quickly simply because they were presented with an airtight case against their position. Um, mm -hmm. We're too prideful. And in today's day and age, we think and learn visually and we think and learn emotionally far more so than we do rationally. Of course, typically you want those things united, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're both um, uh, mind and spirit, right? We're both body and soul. Um, and we feel, but we also think. Uh, but unfortunately, right. there's, a, 
there's a lot uh, less of the, the latter going on in today's political discourse. And so people are moved at a far deeper level and are more willing to change their mind when they feel differently about the topic mm -hmm. in question. And that's why storytelling is so powerful. And that's why mm -hmm. your story does help shift people's thinking on abortion um, because it, um, it presents the thinker with no other option than to either abandon their pro-choice position or tell you, you don't matter. <laughs> right, right. And, and, and the second is not a very nice one. And so <laughs> um, people are willing to change their minds typically when they begin to feel differently first. And then they're open to changing how they think. So um, right. while I tend to do more of the latter, um, yours is actually often more needed um, to change individuals' thinkings on abortion. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so I love how God's using you uh, in this moment with, where, with an obsession with stories and emotions and feeling and my truth um, <laughs> to say, well, here's my truth. Uh, right. My mother was a teenager who was mentally retarded and was gang raped and I nearly died and was in the foster care system and then adopted and, and then I met her later and she told me she loved me and that she was never going to abort me. So what do you say to that? You know, now obviously you say it more graciously than I would, but Draw God's Mike. using it powerfully. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mike. Drop. <laughs> so um, anyways, brother, we'll, we'll have to do something uh, together and we'll certainly have you on um, again. But um, where can people connect with you, um, your ministry? Uh, to learn yeah. more or to book you for an event. We have lots of pregnancy center people's, uh, uh, folks that listen to this and pastors yeah. um, if they want to uh, get on board with how God's using you. Yeah. Well, obviously, I'm on all the social media, you know, um, Facebook, Instagram, all that. But the quickest way by any is to go to stephenthon.com. Uh, it's just my first name, so I own my own website, right? But stephenthon.com uh, for me personally. And then for Broken Not Dead, it's brokennotdead.com. So Praise God. The, the, both those website platforms will get you uh, where you need to be. Is so, your mom still alive? She is not. Okay. Um, and I actually, to, um, she passed away a little over a year ago. She died uh, Thanksgiving night of 2020. Uh, she actually choked on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the facility, the uh, mental oh facility gosh. that she was in. And uh, my uncle called me and asked me, you know, what do you want to do? Because her vitals weren't, you know, they had her hooked up to machine. And, and I said, uh, what are we waiting on? I know uh, in the video, which some of you all hopefully will watch, she said, I love Jesus. And that's enough for me. Uh, I know that one day I have the hope that I have because of my relationship with Christ is I'll see her again. And she's whole and complete now. Um, and Seth, I know this may not... Um, I had people tell me after they found out that she had passed, I'd shared on Facebook and Instagram and let people know. Cause you know, we're so connected across the country. Yeah. And right. I said, uh, they told me, you know, um, your mom's not just my hero or she's not just your hero. She's my hero too. And, uh, that's how much life matters. That's you right. know, that's, right. that's how much life matters. So yeah, anyways, that's right. That's right. and she is a hero. She is a hero. She is. She she's mine for sure. Man, yep. with all the pressure to kill you. Incredible, yep. brother. Well, thank you, man. Thanks for blessing us. Thanks for coming on. Um, we'll, we'll be praying for your ministry. And, and yeah, you guys go you, connect Seth. with uh, Stevenson. Go follow him. Um, if, if, you know, if, you're, if you're a pregnancy center, youth pastor, whatever you do, these kind of events, consider Stevenson to uh, bring out to really light a fire under your young people and your church or your pregnancy center 
um, and uh, he, he'll, uh, he'll shake things up, as I think yeah. we're increasingly in need of um, in America and in the church right now. So thank you, brother. Appreciate you. You're welcome, Seth. Thank you guys for having me. Blessings. You too, man. Thank you guys for joining the show today. Uh, powerful story. Why, share this with some pro-choicers, yeah? Um, and uh, ask them to listen to it if they're willing to talk with you. I know you have friends and family members that are uh, pro-choice. And ask them um, when Stevenson's life began to matter. Um, and ask those hard questions and ask them to listen to this as well. Um, and that uh, maybe they will begin to feel differently about abortion and begin to think differently about it as well. If you want to connect with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule, or to book me for an event as 2022 is already beginning to fill up for the spring and into the summer. Um, we are still on the move in churches, waking people up to start pro-life ministries and end abortion before it's too late to do so. Uh, so please do that. If you want to support the show and help us reach more people, create more types of digital content and engage in the public square, head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted, patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Check out our tiers and the perks you get for supporting the show. And we really appreciate it. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs>